I've preached a lot of sermons. I've preached a lot of sermons in the 20 years that I've been in, in ministry, either as a youth pastor, as a senior pastor. I've spoken at camps. I've, I've gone to all kinds of different uh, missions trips. I've preached a lot of sermons. And every now and again as a pastor, and every one I consider, uh, it, you know, every time I come to a message, I prepare that message, not like it's a, you know, a lesser than or it's not as an important of a message. But every now and again, the Spirit of God will, in my study, will start stirring my heart and I will realize that what he's speaking uh, in a particular moment or through its particular message has a little more weight, has some weightiness to it. And today is one of those days. Uh, the last few days as I've been studying, as I've been meditating on our passage, just realizing that God is doing something in in us as a church, not just here, but, but globally, that he is awakening the church that belongs to him to engage in battle, to take a stand for the kingdom of light and to drive back the darkness that exists in the world around us. And so this morning, as we, as we continue in our series along the way, as we've been talking about walking with Jesus and looking at some of the places where Jesus ministered in the, in the land of Israel, some of the things that took place and, and some of the locations, and I hope that through this journey, there's maybe been some details or some understanding that's been unlocked as we've pressed into some of those locations. I, I'm going to forego a lot of the, the, the recap this morning because I want to get to our passage, but we've talked about the fact that, that Jesus meets us along the way. And we have to slow down and we have to be intentional about meeting him. It's not just about the destination. It's about meeting him in the midst of the journey. Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of the journey that you're walking right now. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We understand this, that Jesus covered a lot of ground, literally covered a lot of ground during his ministry, walking thousands of miles, crisscrossing the nation of Israel from the north to the south, the east to the west, kind of going in circles at sometimes it looks like you look at some of the maps and he went around the, the Sea of Galilee a few times, crisscrossing even over the sea. But today, I want to take us to the very northern part of Israel, and we get that map up here and I'll show you. It'll be up on the, the, the top screen there as well. To give you a little context of where we're going to be, uh, we're, this is Jerusalem down in the south, and we've talked about the, the, the Sea of Galilee. We've been around Jerusalem. Uh, we came out uh, towards Cana, the wedding in Cana, but uh, we're going to press in a little further to the north, so I have another map that I want to show. So, so here's the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to move up all the way up to here, up to a place called Panius. Um, it's close to Mount Hermon, which is located in the north up here. Uh, Mount Hermon is the highest point in the nation of Israel, the highest mountain, and discovered this week that Israel actually has a ski resort on Mount Hermon. A little trivia there for you. Um, but we're going to land in this place called Panius, also known as Caesarea Philippi. There's really only one account in Scripture of Jesus being in this place or one time that he goes up here, but I believe it's one of the most critical and crucial points of ministry and conversation that Jesus has in his ministry. In fact, I would so go far as to say, and this is, this is Barry's view, uh, this is not some commentator or theologian, this is just my perspective, but as I was reading this passage and this encounter outside of Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus and then Jerusalem, specifically Golgotha and his death and then resurrection. I believe that this point in his ministry could be one of the, the most important places of ministry in Jesus's life. That what he, is, what he says in this place and the kind of encounter he has with his disciples is a turning point, not just for them, but for us as well. We all understand this, that identity is important. Your, your identity is important. In fact, there's companies that make a lot of money every year protecting your identity, right? You want to keep your name, your, your, your social security number, your passport, your driver's license. You want to keep all of that safe, all of your information that's out in, 
in the cloud and in the web. Uh, your identity is your, also your name and, and where you were born. Maybe your, your, your family, your heritage, your background. We talk about identity as, as in relation to our race, ethnicity, our gender. Some people identify what identifies them as their career. Maybe education. Where were they educated? What kind of degrees do you have? Right? If you, if you have a doctorate, you make sure that when you write your name, you put that whatever doctorate that is, right? Because you put a lot of work in for that, and you're going to be identified by that, by that title. For many, though, even in the midst of all of these accomplishments and all of this understanding, they're still left asking, asking the question, who am I? Who am I? Who, who, who is it that God has made me to be? Or maybe even without the Lord, there's people who in the world just ask, who am I and what is this life all about? We come to Caesarea Philippi in today's text. We find Jesus asking a similar question. Not exactly the same, but, but a similar question in regards to identity, in regards to his identity. But he's not asking the question because he's confused. Right? Jesus isn't confused. He's not going, hey... He, he doesn't address the disciples. We'll read the text here in a minute. But he doesn't address the, the disciples asking about his identity because he's going, hey, I forgot for a minute who I am. Could you help me out? Right? Jesus absolutely knows who he is. He's asking for the sake of the disciples. He's asking them a question because they need to know who he is. We need to know who he is unequivocally. Without hesitation, without any doubt, we need to know who Jesus is. And so again, I believe outside of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, in those two places where Jesus was born, when he died and was risen, rose again, that this could be one of the most important sites in all of Israel. Let's read together in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be reading from verse 13 onwards says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of Of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and that gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ or the Messiah. This is a passage of scripture that that is very likely familiar to you. I want to talk a little bit about that region and we're going to unpack this passage a bit this morning. Caesarea Philippi uh, was a kind of a no-go zone for observant Jews. For those who love God didn't go to Caesarea Philippi because it was a cesspool. It was not a good place. The other name that it's referenced as is Pania because of the God that was worshipped in that place, the God Pan, the pagan God Pan. See, Caesarea Philippi is located in Upper Galilee in what's now known as the Golan Heights it's a beautiful area. It's really lush. There's a lot of forests. And Caesarea Philippi is one, the location of one of the springs that feeds the Jordan River. Mount Hermon to the north is where it snows during the winter and that snowpack melts, goes underground, and then it pops up back out of the ground. And one of those locations where it pops that spring pops up is in Caesarea Philippi at this place, the center of pagan worship. There's a large grotto or cave that during Jesus' time was the actual place where this water came out. And I have a couple of pictures of this place we can put up on the screen. This is, this is Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the left side there, you can see that cave, that grotto. And so in Jesus' time, when he was in this region, there would have been water that would have been flowing out of that cave and running down. And, and, and it wasn't just a, a trickle of water. It was gushing. And even to this day, uh, there was an earthquake that relocated. The, the mountain moved. Some of the rocks moved. And so now that, that spring still comes up, uh, you can see the water right in the front here. So it's a few yards uh, away from where the cave is. But it's still a place of, of water and a place of uh, source of life for the nation of Israel in regards to the water that flows from that place. Uh, I have another picture to show you, just another perspective. See, what had happened is right next to where this cave was, and these are the excavations and the archaeological digs in that region, is... This cave was identified by the pagan, uh, the pagan worshipers, the, the, those that, that worship Pan and, and all of these other gods. This cave was identified as the portal between the underworld and this world. And it was called, the name of it was the Gates of Hell. This, this cave is called, was named the Gates of Hell. And it was in this place, there's another picture, there's an artist's rendering uh, of what it looked like back in Jesus' time. And so you can see the cave on the left side, the cave over on this left side, and the back of this temple, this particular temple, is where they would make sacrifices to the pagan gods, human sacrifices, and, and for the most part, child sacrifices, where they would be tossed into this cave. And all throughout this area, these different temples that were erected, and, and day and night, there was just a continuous, I, I use the word loosely, it was a party, it was a festival, it was a celebration, but it was not the kind of thing you want to take your kids to. There was all kinds of immoral and evil that took place in this location, in this place that was a portal between hell and earth at the gates of Hades. It was a place where human life and the sanctity of human life was disregarded. The sacrificing of children and adults and animals. A place where depravity was embraced. Sexual sin of all kinds indulged in in that place. It was a very dark place, and it was a place that if you were an observant Jew, you didn't go here. This is not the place that you would, you would go to Jerusalem, you would go to your local synagogue to worship God, but you had no business being in Caesarea Philippi. It was bad news. Yet it's this place to which Jesus goes he comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Isn't it amazing? We read those words. He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and we just go, oh, he was in a place. But the reality is Jesus went to the darkest place he could find, the darkest place spiritually he could find in that day to have the conversation that comes next. By the way, John 10.10 10 tells us that the enemy comes only, only to steal, kill, and destroy. And his handiwork was so evident in this place. And it would be easy for us to look at these, these drawings and say, well, whew, that was terrible. I'm sure glad it's not like that anymore. But the reality is that every 40 seconds around the world, someone takes their own life. This last week, two high-profile people who committed suicide. And for a few minutes, the world kind of goes, oh, how tragic and how terrible. But the reality is every 40 seconds somewhere in the world, someone ends their own life because of the lies of hell that are being perpetrated against them. Every year in this country, close to a million babies are killed. In abortion. Close to a million lives are snuffed out and ended. In the name of convenience. 
because we want to live our lives. And, and hear my heart, I know that there's all kinds of arguments and things about extenuating circumstances, but the reality is those arguments are the exception by a large margin. They are the exception, not the rule. And not too different from those who would party it up in this place, disregarding life, disregarding morals and values, disregarding even their own bodies. To engage in sensual and pleasurable activity that does not honor God. We are not far off. Along with everything else we see in the world around us and in our culture, we are broken and we need a savior. We need a savior. So it's to this place that Jesus comes. The darkest of the darkest places in all of the nation of Israel. And of course the irony is this. It's the source of water that runs into the Jordan River and provides life for the whole country of Israel. Yet it's at this source that death and darkness is spewing forth. And it's in this place that Jesus has this conversation with his, his disciples. He asks them this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's hanging out with his disciples. They're probably feeling uncomfortable already because they're in a place that they're not supposed to be. Jesus, why have you brought us here? We shouldn't be here. This is not a good place for us to be. But they trust him, so they follow him. And in this place, in the midst of the darkness, Jesus looks at them and he says, who do people say that I am? There's a lot of ideas today about who Jesus is. Some people would go so far as to say that Jesus is a lie, that he's fictional, that he's made up. And I just say, you have to ignore a lot of history to get away with that viewpoint. That the manuscripts and the documents that exist proving the existing existence of Jesus are way more, infinitely more than they are for people like Alexander the Great. Yet people don't go, well, he never existed. But in order to justify their lives, to be able to say, well, he's just a lie, he's just made up, he's fictional. Some would say, well, Jesus existed, but he was just a historical figure, nothing more, nothing less. He lived during that time. He taught some people. He had a few, few people that followed him around, and we have some things that are written about him, but that's all he was, was his, a historical figure. And some would say that, well, he was just a, a moral teacher. He was a good moral teacher. Some other religions outside of Christianity would say, well, he was a, he was a prophet. He was just a prophet, but he was not the son of God, that he was God's spokesman, that he came to point people back to God, but that he was not God and that he was, he was just a prophet. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity, and I'd love to read this to you. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either, would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can, shut, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Figured I can't say it better than C.S. Lewis can. We don't have the right to go there. The world has lots of ideas about who Jesus is, and it was the same in that time. 
There were people around who had ideas of who Jesus was. And so he asks the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so their response is this. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Who was Jesus, we know was Jesus' cousin who had died. But there were those who said, well, Jesus was now John the Baptist back alive. Now the timeline just doesn't work, right? Because John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And so I don't know how you make that, draw that conclusion, but there were people who were like, oh, he must be John the Baptist. Maybe they just confused the two. And then they said, oh, others say that you're Elijah. And the, the, the kind of the overwhelming thought in that time was that the Messiah was actually Elijah who would come back. Elijah would reappear to them and he would be the one that would deliver. And they revered Elijah. Elijah the prophet was a man who moved with great power and authority. And they thought, well, maybe Elijah will show back up and he will deliver us from our bondage. Interestingly, it's just... Uh, a few days later, six days later, that Jesus goes up to a high mountain, most likely Mount Hermon. We, we don't know for sure, but Mount Hermon is the highest point in all of Israel. And so Jesus goes up with three of the disciples to the top of this high mountain. And it's at that point that he is transfigured and, and the glory of God comes upon him and he shines Right, His face is glowing and he's glowing in bright white and he hears the, the voice of the father saying, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then as the disciples are watching, they look over and they see Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. So obviously this is not, he's not Elijah because he then goes and has a conversation with Elijah just a few days later. But there were those who thought, well, he's Elijah. And then others would say he was Jeremiah, just one of the prophets who had come back, that God had sent back to be this voice. Who do the people say I am? See, there's a lot of people who think they know who Jesus is, have an idea of who he is, have thoughts regarding his identity. But the, the goal is this. It's not to know something about him or to formulate a position. The goal is to know him personally. To have a personal relationship with the Savior of the world, one-on-one. And so Jesus turns the question on them. From who do they say the Son of Man is? And he says to them, who do you say I am? It's a pivotal question. It's an absolutely pivotal question. Who do you say I am? I would ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is in your life? Who is Jesus Christ to you? It's this question that differentiates Christianity from every other religion in the world. If you want to know whether a a religion or or, or a, a, a a way of thinking or faith, faith way of thinking is, is true. Just ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And you will find out very quickly whether it's truth or a lie. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Standing there in the midst of the center of pagan worship in that land, Peter makes this declaration. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Those two words, by the way, are interchangeable. Messiah and Christ means the same thing. Jesus was and is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one chosen by God to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and death. The one set apart to save God's people. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. The one that we've been longing for. The one we've been looking for 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 hundreds of years. We've been waiting for you. You are the Messiah. By the way, I love that it's Peter who makes this declaration. Once again, here's Peter leading the charge. I might be wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
I might, I might not be able to walk on water, but I'm going to give it a shot, right? Peter just seems to be the guy who steps up. <laughs> might as well. Here goes. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. The son of the living God part is so key for us. Because consider where they were, all of these shrines, you can see them kind of carved into the walls of that cliff, or where all of the idols rested, the dead, lifeless gods that the people worshipped. There was no life. You're not like them. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the the living God, the only living God. There is no other God except for him. And you are his son. Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. For this was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my Father in heaven. Can I stop here for a second? That God's desire is to reveal himself to you. Here's Peter, a fisherman, uneducated, brash, talking out of turn, saying things he shouldn't, doing things he shouldn't. Yet it's this guy. It's this guy who receives the, the initial revelation amongst men of who Jesus is. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no person showed you this. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And Jesus makes a connect that previously could not have been made. That you could not, as a common person, have that kind of relationship with God. Yet here is Peter receiving a revelation from God regarding who Jesus is. Blessed are you, Peter. God wants to reveal himself to you to a date greater degree than you've ever experienced. He, says, he, he then says to him, I, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not Overcome it. You are Peter. It's this statement in this verse that has created a lot of conflict and a lot of controversy and a lot of disagreement over hundreds of years within the church about what Jesus meant. And whole movements and denominations have been started based off of this verse. And so it's so key for us to understand here what is Jesus saying? Who's the rock? We understand this, maybe, maybe you've not heard this, but Peter, the word Peter, the name Peter means rock. And so the, some would interpret and say, well, Jesus says, you are Peter, you are the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, you're the rock. The problem is, is that Jesus uses two different words in the Greek. That he refers to Peter as a little rock, and then he refers to the revelation as a big rock. The revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundational rock. Peter's role is not diminished because of Jesus. In fact, he now has purpose. He now has place because of who Jesus is. Now, I don't want to camp out here too long. But we need to understand this, that, that, that we fit. That Peter fit because Jesus is and was who he says he is. Upon this rock, the rock of this revelation, the rock of what you have declared to be true in the midst of this dark place, you have made a statement that is absolutely true. And that rock, that, that, that statement is foundational to everything you will believe from this point on. If Jesus is not the Messiah, if Jesus is not the son of the living God, we have no foundation to build upon. 
And so that statement is so key, it is so critical to everything that comes next. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. On this rock, I will build my church. Our theme this year as a church is the word build. Build, that God is building his spiritual house, his spiritual people. Our key passage for this year is found, of course, in the book of First Peter. See, Peter understood his place. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God as, a, as precious to him, you also like living stones. See, Jesus is the living stone, the capital S stone, the big stone, the foundational stone, the cornerstone, the big rock. But you are living stones, small stones. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to him, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, just like Peter, you and I have a place in God's house. And because of the foundation he laid, we now have place that we get to fit into the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the church is not built with physical building materials. The church is built with people. You and me, we are those living stones. We play a key part. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's you. That's me. That's the disciples. It's everyone who would call on the name of Jesus. He had a plan. And this moment in time in the darkest place in Israel, he reveals that plan or begins to reveal that plan saying, you have a critical part to play in what I am doing. Not just now, but till I come again. He goes on to say, I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell will not overcome it or prevail against it. Okay, this is where we have to stop for a second. Because the gates of hell mean a few different things. And we, we probably, most of us, if we didn't understand what this location was, have thought about the gates of hell as just being kind of some kind of spiritual edifice, some place in the spirit realm where the demons kind of come and go. Right, And it's representative of that place between what Jesus is in a physical location sitting with his disciples and he points over and he says, Peter, on this revelation, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell. The very worst that this world has to offer, the very deepest lies that the enemy perpetrates against people, these lies, these, this gate, this stuff will not prevail against my church. It will not prevail. What does that mean for us? It means this, that there is nothing. There is nothing. There is no power no work, no scheme that hell can unleash against us that, can, can, that, that will find its target, that can undo what God wants to do in our lives. Nothing. Nothing. The gates of hell will not prevail or overcome it. 
Jesus takes them to this place, to this dark place. And he says, listen, guys, you see all of this. You see what's happening. You know what people think about this place. I want to tell you that I've come light into a dark world. Not just to save those who are okay. Not just to save those who are close, but just missing a little bit. I've come into this world to reach those who are at the very outer fringes. Who are living their lives in darkness and have given themselves over. I've come to even reach those people. And it doesn't matter what the enemy tries to do to undo it. It cannot be undone because my work will be once and for all. I will establish my church and the authority in which it is established cannot be undone by the forces of darkness and hell. He goes on to say then, in light of that, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys. As our kids have gotten older and they've started learning to drive, there's those moments, hey, Dad, can I have the keys for the car? Like, ah, well, we've been driving together, but you have your license now, and now it's time for me to give you the keys. To get it behind the wheel and start that vehicle up and drive out into the community, onto roads where other people drive and where people ride their bicycles. I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you the authority to go out and drive around to get to where you need to be. So minor compared to what Jesus says here. He says, listen, disciples, Peter, when you recognize who I am and you call on my name and you are saved and you put your faith in me and you turn your life over and you repent and you start walking in a new way. It's not just that you're saved. It's not just that you're going to heaven. And that's an important part. But he says, because of what you have declared, well, who I am and who you know me to be, I am now in a place where I can give you the authority to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is staggering. The authority to move and to function with the, kingdom, with the authority of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Located just a little to the west of Caesarea Philippi is the ancient city of Dan. It was the city of Dan where uh, Abraham, when Lot was taken captive, Abraham goes to the city of Dan. And in fact, the gates that Abraham walked through are still there today. It's pretty amazing to see that you see these rocks and you go, wow, Abraham walked on these paving stones. Well, the gate of that city has been moved throughout the ages. And uh, in fact, there's a picture I want to show you here. This is uh, the seat. You can see there's a little raised area. And this would have been the place where the king or a judge would have sat. And the way that the, the city walls in those times were designed is you would have to kind of, you would come in and then you would have to make a, a 90 degree turn and then you would walk a few feet and then you'd have to make another turn to be able to enter into the city designed as a safety mechanism to prevent any attacking forces from being able to get into the city. Uh, pr primarily chariots couldn't make those two turns uh, at least at a speed that it would have to slow them down, that the archers up on the turrets above would be able to pick them off. But in times when they were not at war, the king would sit at this gate uh, into the city, and it was the king's job to decide who came into the city. He would, he would discern and judge and, and look at people, and, and he would either grant access or deny access into the city. In fact, I have the diagram of what that looked like. This is, so this is that same, it's a little, little hard to see, but the main entrance is up close to the wall, and then we come in and take the left turn, and we can see where that raised platform is, that little structure for the king, and then they would go into 
the arch into the city. Let's go back to the, the previous picture. This particular little stand is actually the place where King David sat. And scripture talks about him sitting in the, the city of Dan at the gate. For a long time, archaeologists had no proof of that. And just recently, they uncovered about 10 feet to the left of where this was. There was a paving stone that a student from the U.S. was uh, working on. And they kind of, it didn't look like the rest of the stones. And they flipped it over and it was engraved. And it talked about how this was the city where David sat. And now they have their proof. When Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, what he is saying is, I'm giving you the authority to sit in a place, first in your own life, where you get to decide what comes in. Where you get to decide and discern and judge and say, you know what, that is not of God, that has no place in my life, that has no place in my home, that has no place in my marriage. He says, you will be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the authority to exercise and speak God's promises over your life. It's interesting that there's a connection here between This passage, what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because he's worthy of praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. They'd grown up learning how to pray. But they recognized that Jesus didn't pray the way everyone else prayed. It says that Jesus taught as one who had authority. He prayed as one who had authority. And when they say, teach us to pray, they're going, Jesus, teach us to pray with authority like you pray. In this moment in Caesarea Philippi, he says to them, I am giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I am giving you the authority you need to pray and see things happen. To have a connection with God that sees his kingdom established here on earth as it is in heaven. Luke 10, 19 through 20, Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Now, some people have just made it weird, Right? Come, come as be with some Pentecostals. You're like, really? Take the snake out of the church. They're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan was represented by a snake. The scorpions were a stinging insect that represented evil, not good. And so he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. The represent, representation of the kingdom of darkness. I've given you the authority to trample on those things. And to overcome some of the power of the enemy. (laughs) All of the power. Just seeing if you're still awake. All the power of the enemy. And nothing can harm you. There is a tie here that needs to be recognized. That God says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'm giving you the authority. And when you stand in that authority, you have the authority to, to, to trample on every scheme, every attack. It doesn't matter what kind of dark pit it's coming out of. You have the authority to take your stand. So take your stand. So Jesus finishes this, at the end of this passage here in, in Caesarea Philippi, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so what we do is we read that and go, I'm not sure what that means. So we just go on to the next part of scripture. But this is the, where the rubber meets the road for us. Whatever you bind on earth and whatever you loose on earth will be bound and loosed in heaven. 
Well, I have power now to manipulate God or get him to do what I want to do? No, not at all. The tense that these words are written in is this. Whatever you bind, whatever you come against, the authority that you bind up in this world, God says, I've already gone ahead and done it for you in heaven. The work's already done. It's a future tense. So whatever you come against in your life and you recognize that this is standing in opposition to my life, my marriage, my health, my finances, my whatever, and you go, God, I I am declaring and I am binding the power of the enemy in this place. God says, great, I've already done it. The work's already done. It's sitting at the gate of your life and saying, God, I'm not letting anything in that doesn't belong. In the same way he says, loose it on earth, it's already loosed in heaven. That the enemy brings into captivity lives, thinking. There's brokenness. These people were being held captive. And Jesus is saying that through the authority that we have, that we can loose the bonds, that we can break the chains here on earth because Jesus says, I've already done the work. It's already that way in heaven. He's just kind of waiting for us to catch up. But he doesn't force it. It's an invitation where he says, you recognize who I am. You understand that you play a critical part in the church. That you, you know that you've been given authority and then you stand in that authority. That's it. That's Christianity. That's being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so often what we do is we say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. I, I call on him. Amen. You are saved. And we stop. And we struggle through life, hoping that it will get better one day. And Jesus didn't promise that life would be easy. He said we would have trouble, that we would have opposition. But I think a lot of the opposition we have in our lives, a lot of the struggle and the brokenness we have in our lives is not because of the enemy. It's because we've opened the gates of our cities and said, come on in, it's not a big deal. That we've not taken a stand in the authority that Jesus has given. And that when we pray even the Lord's prayer, and it's just, oh, our Father in heaven, yada, yada, yada. No. Your kingdom come on earth right now in my life to bring freedom into the darkest places that exist. See, because the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. That we are not designed as followers of Jesus Christ to live in fear of the enemy. That we take our stand. It's not about how loud we pray. It's not about the eloquence. Right? This is why I love that Peter is the one. Gives me hope. It was Peter. Peter's the one who stepped forward and said, this is who you are. I might be wrong, but I'm willing to to just blurt it out. And Jesus says, you didn't get that from people. You got that from my father. That we would step into a place and into that authority and say, God, I'm done just praying passive prayers. Kind of, Lord, I just kind of hope. Just kind of throw me a bone. You are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given the authority of the kingdom of heaven to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing can harm you. And it's time for us. Aiden, can we put that, the picture of the gate or the, the, the stand where David sat? It's time for us to take our place 
in our homes and in our marriages and in our lives to say, what is coming in? What's passing by in front of me that I'm ignoring, that I'm saying, it's okay. And for us to be in a place to take our stand and say, Jesus, give me the wisdom and the discernment and then help me flow in the authority to recognize the junk for what it is, the lies for what they are, and to cast them down, to bind them, to loose them in the name of Jesus. Our lives depend on it. Our marriages depend on it. Our children depend on it. Jesus took the disciples to the darkest place to reveal his glory, that they would see who he is. Jesus wants to invade the darkest place of your life and shine the light of his love and the authority to break those things down and for you to walk in freedom. I'm going to ask that we stand, invite the worship team to come. I will build my church out of living stones, that's you, and the gates of hell will not prevail. As we go to worship, I'm going to ask, our our prayer team will be available I'm going to be available and, and some of our leaders. In fact, there'll be some in the back, but I'm going to kind of hang out on the side here or towards the front. And I want you to, as you come before the Lord, as what, whatever God's stirring in your heart, would you respond today? And if, if you need to stand in agreement with someone in, in any aspect of your life, where you need to see the power and the authority of God released, build up, to stop the tearing down, to stop the brokenness. We'd love to agree with you this morning. We'd love to pray with you. By the way, it's important that the words come out of our mouths, that the binding and loosing actually happens when we speak. Jesus said, when the disciples said, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, say. Speak it out. Say the words. There is power in our words. So let's declare over our lives, over our homes, over our marriages, over our children, over our extended family, over our community, that the enemy has no authority. That Jesus has been given all the authority and he has given us that authority. And let's declare those things over our lives and our community. Thank you, Jesus. That we don't have to stand in our own authority. Whatever we think we need to accomplish. Doesn't matter who the world says around us says you are. What matters is who you are. And I pray, Lord, that every day that we would answer that question in our own hearts. That we would be reminded every day that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There is no other. And that you have given us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Thank you, God, that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Jesus' name, amen.